0: Hello, 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 and welcome to The Boss Podcast, episode 87. I am Kirk Bailey, here to bring you another slice of Boss Archive Pie to feed your innovative mind and nurture your SaaS-loving spirit. This week, we talk software ecosystems with Eclipse Foundation's Mike Milankovic. The Business of Software Podcast, sharing sessions from our conferences and discussions with software people that will make you think. Find out more at businessofsoftware.org. Software ecosystems is a continuously evolving ideology in the field of software engineering. It is an approach through which many variables can resolve complex relationships among companies in the industry. It is a co-innovation approach by developers, software organisations and third parties that share common interest in the development of software technology. Mike's talk at BossConf USA 2008 looks at providing you with a practitioner's guide to ecosystem development. Happy listening. Uh, yes, I do run an open source foundation, but I'm from the other fringe. Um, <laughs> so, I um, guess, okay, keep thinking. OK, so what are we going to talk about? What will you learn in this, uh, in this hour? So the first thing is, what is a business ecosystem? Um, I think that uh, the entire software industry can be portrayed as many competing ecosystems, and I think that it's hugely important that everybody who is involved in the business of software understand what ecosystems are all about. Why it matters to your business, and we'll talk lots about that. Of course, I'm from the open source world, so I'm going to be putting a plug-in for why I think open source accelerates ecosystem creation. And then I'm going to close off with some lessons that uh, I think that we've learned uh, in the Eclipse Foundation uh, in in how to grow, foster, uh, create uh, an ecosystem. Not all of these are going to be directly attributable to a for-profit business, uh, but I hope they all provide some food for thought. This is very much a practitioner's guide, like the title said. Uh, I am in the business of running an ecosystem. That is what I do every day. I got hired into this job having never even really heard of the word ecosystem before. And for the first, you know, end number of months, uh, certainly uh, I had no time to go out and read any articles about ecosystems, read any of the literature about ecosystems. I had to do things like open a bank account, it took me about four months to figure out how to pay myself. You know, all the sort of traditional startup blues, right? So it's very much a, it was very much a startup story as well. Why should you care? You know, if, you got, if you're running a business, why should you care? And the number one reason is if you don't know what ecosystem you are in and you don't know what role you're playing in that ecosystem, you don't understand your own strategy because right, the entire software industry, again, is all about ecosystems. You have to know what you're doing in, in that context. So what I'm gonna talk about, I'm gonna talk just a little bit about Eclipse just to set some context. Actually, show of hands, who knows what Eclipse is? All right. Um, who thinks that I work for IBM? <laughs> Damn, we've been trying, you have no idea how hard it is to break perceptions. It's been five years since uh, Eclipse has been run by IBM almost, and uh, just, boy, it's hard to, hard to, hard to beat that. Um, we're gonna talk about ecosystems, of course, the importance of platforms, op- open source ecosystems, and again, lessons learned. Um, so Eclipse development platform, uh, latest numbers, Evans data, there are, actually this is the conservative one. This is, there are four, according to Evans data, there are four million developers who use the open source version of Eclipse um, as, part of their day-to-day development existence. That's not bad. There's another 2.2 million, roughly, uh, who use products based on Eclipse. And that's one of the, you know, really interesting things about Eclipse is we're very much interested in commercial adoption. We're all about seeing the technology that comes out of our open source community be picked up and used in products. We think that's pretty interesting and cool. Um, But that's, you know, so 6.2 million developers, day in, day out, have some interaction with, uh, with Eclipse. Um, from a development platform, um, it supports many languages and we're very, you know, uh, you know, lots of people um, use Eclipse as their primary Java IDE. That's still what we're best known for. But you can get uh, language pro- or programming IDEs based on Eclipse for almost every programming language you can imagine. And in fact, it's probably fair to say that Eclipse as a technology has enabled, you know, to use a popular catchphrase these days, the long tail of programming environments. You can get Eclipse-based tools, which work pretty well and and provide a very professional development environment experience for the weirdest, wackiest languages you can can imagine. They're all out there somewhere. Um, You know, uh, my, you know, COBOL, you know, your dad's language um, being one of my personal favorites. Um, We're also getting very involved in doing a lot of runtime stuff, and you can get OSGI-based runtimes from Eclipse that do all kinds of stuff. Um, you've got uh, Eclipse technology showing up on Series 60. You've got them showing up, the Lotus, new versions of Lotus Notes um, is based on Eclipse on the desktop. Um, it's not all our fault. Um, <laughs> uh, and um, the, um, and I don't know how many people realize this, but underneath WebLogic Server and WebSphere is the Eclipse OSGI implementation, and that's how they use to componentize their own implementation. So. Uh, we show up in servers as well. Um, As a foundation, uh, one of the um, interesting things that's always been true about Eclipse is that it's this interesting marriage between an open source community and an industrial consortium, and that's where this whole focus on creating a commercial ecosystem comes from. Uh, Actually, we can never keep these slides up to date, but, you know, we're 186 members, Um, The logos that are shown on that slide are are the companies that um, are what we call strategic members. They're paying between $25,000 and $250,000 a year to support the Eclipse Foundation and uh, make sure that uh, that we have the resources to continue doing what we're doing. There's a snapshot of the entire membership. You can pretty much find uh, logos from companies around the world, from all through the IT industry, whether you're talking about embedded, whether you're talking about enterprise software, everything in between. Um, one of the, you know, again, you know, most people know us for our Java environment, but Eclipse in the C and C++ world is actually the uh, IDE that is used by every single major real-time operating system vendor except one, right? <laughs> oh, sorry, two. Microsoft, if you want to think of Windows Mobile as as an embedded operating system, I actually don't, but um, I was thinking of Green Hills when I said that. Um, Just a little little snapshot, as this was done last year, um, in terms of where the investment in Eclipse projects is coming from and all the different companies that are participating. um, The interesting thing for us uh, at Eclipse is last year, 2007, was the year that IBM, um, which founded Eclipse, uh, went below 50% in terms of the total investment of going on in Eclipse. The other interesting thing is that 25% um, of the participants in Eclipse are, have chosen to uh, be individuals. Um, some of them work for companies, but are, are, are in Eclipse as individuals and are participating at Eclipse in, in the sort of more traditional, um, sort of maybe say Apache style, open source kind of behavior. Um, and those are the different companies that are, that are supporting committers at Eclipse. So um, that's just a quick snapshot of Eclipse, just to give you some context of where I'm coming from. Um, and, and that's it. So ecosystems. So uh, you can find there is a wealth of business literature um, out there about business ecosystems. They all sort of um, come from the notion that the, uh, the idea of an ecosystem from the study of ecology provides an inter- interesting metaphor for studying behavior in certain business uh, scenarios. Um, I have a confession to make. When I first started as the executive director of the Clips Foundation, I hated that word. And actually, I would have tried to have found another word except it was actually embedded in our bylaws, um, which were basically, as far as I'm concerned, stone tablets brought down a hill um, and were in, you know, impossible to change, um, so I was stuck with it. And one of the reasons, there's lots of reasons why I disliked the word ecosystem. By the way, I've more or less grown to love it. Um, but one of the reasons why I dislike the word is that everybody, when they use the word ecosystem, they always have something like this picture in their mind, right, just like you know, the, the soft pines and you know, so on. They always forget that any functioning ecosystem has predators and that um, competition, um, including uh, being eaten, is part of any healthy ecosystem. And that part um, is not only glossed over, I think, in the sort of popular literature, uh, but in the business literature as well. I haven't really read very much that uh, that talks about the role of predators um, in an ecosystem. Um, yeah. have a business in an ecosystem article called Predators the Pride. OK. Missed that one. I actually, I think it's the same. I think I quote another article of his shortly. Um, the uh, the the idea though of predators is kind of interesting, and one of the things that we've always thought about at Eclipse is what would be a predator in our ecosystem look like. And I think you know the most obvious example would be um, a company that decided that they wanted to grow through gobbling up multiple small companies and grow their. Um, technology-based very rapidly at relatively low cost because you can get some pretty cool technology um, within the Eclipse ecosystem by buying up some pretty small companies. Um, and there's one really interesting bit about that is if you look at you know, one of the major risks that happen in an M&A scenario, one of the major risks is uh, integration risk, uh, technical integration risk um, when you're talking about software and technology. And you can build, uh, you can acquire companies uh, within the Eclipse ecosystem and have basically zero uh, integration risk because everything that happens in Eclipse is based on this common uh, component model. But anyways, within the world of ecosystems, we already know in our day-to-day world in the software, in, in our, in a, because we all work in the software industry, we already know, you know lots of ecosystems. Um, you know, Microsoft, I think, uh, is well studied in the literature and is actually one of the ones that is, I, I think as a company, um, they've done a really great job of managing the ecosy- their ecosystem over an extended period of time. Um, the Java ecosystem, I think to a large degree, was successful because a lot of different companies rallied around Java when it first came out as a competitor to the Microsoft ecosystem. And a lot of the success that Java has had over the number, uh, last number of years has been because of the investment of multiple companies in that ecosystem. Ecosystems can be really big, right? This is a snapshot of uh, of a portion of the Microsoft Windows ecosystem from a few years ago, uh, from an article. Um, And you're looking at thousands and tens of thousands of companies uh, participating in the Microsoft ecosystem. but why do ecosystems exist? If we're gonna talk about ecosystems, what's the motivation for even having these things? First one is competition in today's world is not about just being efficient or being effective. It's about being continually innovating in whatever space you may be. That's especially true for all of us in the software industry. If you stop innovating, you die, and you usually die very rapidly. Um, Companies are no longer defined just in terms of the products that they ship today, but their perceived trajectory of innovation. And just to give an example of that, how much of the stock value of any publicly traded software company is based on the belief that this company is going to successfully launch new and innovative products in the future? Right? If if any software company today said, you know what, we like our products the way they are right now, that's pretty much it, we're done. Right? What do you think their stock price is gonna be tomorrow? Right? It's not gonna be very pretty. And frankly, no firms had the skills or resources to do everything, right? And if you think back to, I mean, sure, I'm sure most people in this room at one time have either read Crossing the Chasm or at least are familiar with the ideas. You know, Crossing the Chasm was all about all the work that went from creating this great new idea into presenting a whole solution to uh, an end user or end customer that was gonna pay money for it. Um, these days, especially with the complexity of the systems that we're building, It's impossible to do that with any one company. You need to figure out a way to co-evolve innovation across an ecosystem in order to deliver that whole solution that whatever that might be that the end customer is looking for. So what is an ecosystem from a pictorial point of view? The first thing is every ecosystem ultimately is defined in some way by a platform, right? There has to be some common technical basis for interaction amongst all the players in the ecosystem. That platform and some vision of what that uh, platform can do defines a space, right? And we talk about spaces all the time. I'm in the Java space, I'm in the PHP space, I I work in the Linux world, right? I mean, people say those kinds of phrases in everyday conversation in the software industry. Every ecosystem has to have a network of niches as well. That's part of the definition. If you don't have multiple niches, then I'm not sure exactly what it might be, but it's definitely not an ecosystem. Now, there's lots of talk in today's industry about things like micro-platforms. Now, can a micro-platform spur an ecosystem? The answer is maybe, right? It might be, um, you know, if, it can, if there's multiple niches, and multiple companies start to get involved in those niches, then yeah, sure, even though it's going a very small, very, very well-defined, very closely defined platform, it can still be an ecosystem. It might also be a single, sort of a single niche kind of thing, and that's all, that's all you're ever going to get out of it. And then within niches you have, and within the ecosystem, you have complementors. Complementors in this context are basically companies that are extending the platform in one way or another. And in any particular niche, you can also have companies that are complementing what you're doing or they might be competing with you. It's really clear that in any niche, right, there's going to be competitors and your role as a company is to figure out which niche you're in and which companies in that niche and in the surrounding niches are either partners or prey, to use the phrase. Um, a current example that I, everybody I think is pretty familiar with, uh, Web 2.0. Um, and The interesting thing about, I I think, as the Web 2.0 example, is it's really clear that it's a space, right? Everybody talks about, I'm I'm doing Web 2.0, right? It's this sort of catchphrase. There is a common vision to a certain degree. It's it's not, I think, clearly enunciated in many ways, but it's basically, yeah, we're going to deliver applications. We're going to deliver stuff over the web, and it's going to be a lot better than what we used to do in terms of static content. A lot more dynamic, a lot more applications oriented. Um, But from a platform perspective, and yes, I'm exaggerating to make my point, there's really this one lowest common denominator, right? XML, HTTP request, and after that, pretty much everything is up for grabs. Um, And so what you, but what we're seeing in the industry and and what is driving the behavior of lots of the companies that we hear about every day is fighting over who is gonna control that platform. And this is, by the way, just one, one version of this, right? Today, in today's world, you've got Adobe Air, and Silverlight, and Ajax, and Google Gears, and all these different technologies fighting over who's going to be the dominant player in defining the platform for Web 2.0. I could have just as easily picked a sort of a different viewpoint into the Web 2.0 platform space and talked about Facebook, and MySpace, and Google App Engines, and maybe Salesforce and Software as a Service. You know, that's another sort of picture into the battle over who's going to be defining what the platform is for Web 2.0. I find it really interesting that you've got this enormous ecosystem. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of companies building technologies and competing in the Web 2.0 space. um, And yet the platform is, for all extents and purposes, you know, remains pretty much undefined. It's still very much up for grabs. Uh, So that's going to be an interesting thing to watch because I think it's going to define Um, the software industry for a long time to come once that gets settled down into a few key players. So, um, James Moore. Um, And uh, uh, actually, I do this a lot. Um, I put it up, I put all the text in there, so later on, if you wanna look at the slides, you can look at the whole thing, but there's just a few key words in there that I think actually really matter. So, when we talk about an ecosystem, the first thing to understand is it's, there is a community aspect to any ecosystem any ecosystem, which means that there has to be some, at least some little modicum of doing things because it's right for the community or the ecosystem, not just because it's um, optimizing your business. Um, it could be like actually going to a Microsoft developers conference. That's actually interacting with the Microsoft ecosystem and it's your contribution to participating in the ecosystem, right? Ecosystems are econ- made up of economic actors doing business activities, right? This is an economic and business analysis, not a social analysis. Ecosystems are there to do economically interesting things. I think one of the key features of an ecosystem is this notion of co-evolving innovation, right? If If you have everybody shipping on the same time, doing the same thing, and you're only gonna do it once, That's a very, might be a hugely complicated product development, but it's not an ecosystem. An ecosystem exists when you think about long-term co-evolution of lots of complementary products, goods, services, technologies. That's what it takes to, to build and create and sustain an ecosystem over the long term. So the thing to remember is an ecosystem is a form of economic organization. And it's a form of new, it's a new form of economic organization. And one of the interesting things, and this is what James Moore talks about in this in this paper I referred a few slides back, is that most economic theory out there talks about hierarchies, um, what you and I might typically call companies, um, which are really organizations created for the production of goods, and markets, um, which is a competing hierarchy, a collection of competing hierarchies. Now, the thing about markets is if what your goal is to do is to co-evolve complementary technology to eventually create a complete solution for an end customer, you can't really do that in a market because you can't align interests in a market very easily. In fact, unless you're very, very careful, aligning interests in a market is called an- it will run afoul of most antitrust laws, right? So you have to be extremely careful. An e- ecosystem is an, a new and interesting uh, model for how you can do this co-evolution. One of the things that constantly gets confused is, are an ecosystems just supply chains? Um, and basically, the, you know, the simple answer is no. Um, and one of the things that's really interesting about supply, or one of the main differentiators, is typically, even though you could have incredibly complicated supply chains, um, it's typically to produce a thing, or a you know, fairly small set of things. And there's typically one player in each node in the network, as opposed to a network of niches like you see in ecosystems with lots and lots of players and lots of competing solutions in each one of those niches. i simplify to make, to, to make the point a bit, but you know, one of the things to keep in mind, this is true of both supply chains and hierarchies, firms, is if you have you know, the probability of 80% that each piece of the supply chain is gonna do what they say, if there's five steps in the p- supply chain, you actually only have a 33% chance of shipping on time. Right, and I think that alone explains a lot of the behavior that we've that we see in, 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 in lots of different industries. My current favorite example of this phenomenon is the Dreamliner, um, which, by the way, is you know, one of the most interesting and aggressive uh, approaches to supply chain management for a complex new product um, ever. Right, um, and you know the, the wings are made in Japan, and all these pieces are made all over the place. Um, and by the way, I don't mean to pick on them from the sense that they should have tried an ecosystem approach. I'm just illustrating the risks that you run with a supply chain. Because there's, this is not a module. There's no modular platform for a brand new aircraft design, right? So they had to do it in a supply chain. They used to do it in a pure hierarchy way, doing everything inside the firm. Now they're doing a supply chain. But the point is, is the fact that they were going to end up being, I guess, at current estimates about 18 months late, 12 to 18 months late is not surprising when you realize how complicated their supply chain was and what the the fact that the probability of success in each one of those elements is definitely not one. Um, The current delay, by the way, is is kind of interesting. Um, It's because the brakes, or more specifically, the software that controls the brakes. Anybody heard this story? Yeah, so the software that controls the brakes can't actually be put in the airplane and not because it doesn't work. It works fine, meets all the specs, meets all the requirements, plain lands, everything works. The guys who built the software forgot to follow the FAA regulations for traceability. So basically, I don't know if they have to go back and completely rewrite the stuff, but they have to do a whole pile of work. I think it's estimating months and months and months of work for sure to just go back and sort of re-engineer the traceability of the software to make sure that they can meet FAA regulations. Just goes to show how hard um, and, and what they sort of... Uh, the, the, the how low the probability of success can be on something this complicated. So some key concepts on ecosystems when you're thinking about ecosystems is first is, there has to be some element of coordination. There has to be some idea that you're, you're co-evolving innovation. If there's, not, if there's no innovation happening and if it's not involving multiple players and creating that innovation, it's not, at least in my definition, an ecosystem. There has to be some way to align vision, right? Uh, it can be... You know, guys like um, Steve Jobs, I think, are masters um, of getting out there and aligning vision um, in, a, in an ecosystem context, right? They get the whole, you know, he's, it was every six months, he gets up on stage in his black t-shirt and his pair of jeans and excites the world on what Apple is doing next. Um, and that singularity of vision and the ability to get, get it communicated and align all the players, uh, all the actors in the ecosystem around that is is, is impressive. Um, One of the things to think about is, if there's a a network of niches, what are the barriers to entry into those niches? How do I get into a niche? If I want to move into a niche, how do I go about doing it? What do I have to think about? What are the agreements I have to sign? What are the IP rules for getting involved? What are the degrees of modularity and and openness in the platform? I'll talk more about platforms. They're absolutely key to the whole thing that we're talking about here. Um, But how modular that platform is and how open that platform is is one of the key things you have to think about when participating in an ecosystem. And finally, you have to think of an ecosystem as a network of niches, and if you're in a particular niche and you want to grow your business, um, it's not just about, perhaps it's not just about squashing your competitors in the niche that you're in, it's looking for other niches in the ecosystem that you might be able to grow into. Um, I'm not going to go through all of this. but there's some examples here. This is unscientific. This is Mike's 2 o'clock in the morning firm opinion on what these, how these ecosystems look. Um, and um, I'll pick on Java because um, it's always good fun. Um, I think that they do a pretty good job of co-evolving innovation. There's lots and lots of players in the Java ecosystem um, and uh, lots of you know, JSRs being started by organizations other than, um, other than Sun. Um, so there's lots of co-evolution happening, definitely. Um, a lot of innovation. I would, you know, I think it's pretty easy to argue that there's a slowing pace of innovation happening in the Java ecosystem, but it's still happening. Um, frankly, other than trying to prop up Sun's stock price, I don't see a lot of vision in the Java ecosystem. Um, maybe somebody else does, but I, I personally don't get it. Um, uh, it's pretty much the niches are pretty much open. Um, you might want to sign up to the JSPA and per- per- uh, participate in the. Uh, the JCP, you might choose not to. Platform openness, I was a little harsh on there by putting a question mark, but it's because it's mostly pretty good. The only my only hesitation there is that one little veto uh, that Sun has in the JCP, where if they don't want to do a change in the platform, Sun ultimately gets to, to veto the change. Um, and modularity in Java, I'm sure many of you program in Java, modularity in Java is still not a great story, I don't think. Um, one of the things I think they got exactly wrong was many years ago deciding that the modularity model um, for Java ME, Java SE, and Java EE, they consciously decided to make those modularity models different. So you have EJBs in, uh, in enterprise Java, um, you have Java Beans um, in, in, in the desktop edition, and um, you've got, what is it, JSR 232 or whatever it is in, in the ME world. Um, And I think that was probably a mistake. I think they would have been a lot better off by having a common modularity model. And that's one of the battles that's going to get fought in Java 7 for those who like to follow those kinds of amusing industry political uh, stories. Um, One of the things to be be aware of, too, is that you you can't just think of what the ecosystem is, but what's the health of the ecosystem. And there's a good article uh, here by uh, Marco Iancidi, I'm probably mispronouncing his name, and Roy Levin, HBR. that um, talks really about three different parameters on how to think about the health of an ecosystem. And one of the most important points they make is it's not just about the growth or the size of an ecosystem, but it really is how healthy is that ecosystem. So productivity, how much value is being created and captured, how much money are people making. Um, robustness. Um, so if something bad happens and maybe a couple of niches get squashed by a competitor? Does the ecosystem continue and survive and, can, and, and does it recover rapidly from that, from that uh, in this case, a, this example, a, a negative event? And niche creation. You know, as new opportunities uh, are created that are sort of external to the ecosystem, is there a way, uh, is there a mechanism uh, or a culture even of that ecosystem rapidly growing to fill those new niches? And these are all uh, somewhat based on ecological models as well. Um, Ian Seedy later uh, went on to write a book called The Keystone Advantage and really makes the point that it's the keystone company the, uh, that, uh, uh, that is responsible for maintaining the health of the overall ecosystem. And you have to, as, as the keystone company, you really have to um, judge how much money are you leaving in the ecosystem versus taking for yourself, right? You have to be constantly balancing that, that sort of power equation for the ecosystem. And, um, uh, which I think is absolutely true um, and uh, very uh, sort of a va- very valuable insight. Um, so, importance of platforms. I think platforms are absolutely key to, uh, to even thinking about ecosystems. So just to remind everybody, we are here. We're talking about platforms. Um, and uh, one of the first uh, s- books about uh, pl- platform leadership uh, discussed that there's really four elements um, for thinking about how to define an ecosystem in terms of platform leadership. So the first thing, and this is true for everybody in this room, is you have to decide what the scope of your firm is. Are you going to be a platform leader? Are you going to be a wannabe? Uh, I guess the canonical example is, are you gonna be an Intel or are you gonna be an AMD, right? That's that's sort of, I think, the best example of those, that, uh, those two uh, Um, tags, or are you going to be a complementer? Are you going to be one of the companies that are going to live within the ecosystem and live in a niche, one or more niches, and make your business um, living in the ecosystem rather than defining the ecosystem? Um, If you are the platform leader and you are defining the platform technology, then you have to really think about what's the degree of modularity and what's the degree of openness. If there's one criticism that I've got for pretty much everything that you uh, will read, or at least everything, pretty much everything I've ever read, and sorry for missing that article, um, about ecosystems is they pretty much all assume that at the heart of any ecosystem is a for-profit company um, that is constantly juggling um, how much secrecy or how much openness they want to maintain in terms of enabling their ecosystem. Um, so openness in this context is not, openness, is not the way I use openness coming from the open source world, but openness from the context of, are you going to document all the APIs? What's the license terms going to be for that API documentation? Are you going to make any source code available, right? These are the kinds of, you know, what are you going to keep as trade secrets? What are you going to patent? How open is the platform going to be? Um, if you're a complementer, you basically have to, you know, define your world in terms of who are your partners and who are your prey, right? And by the way, you have to be uh, typically in in most uh, single firm uh, e- funded ecosystems. You have to be constantly living in a world where you could be the prey from the plat- pretty much from the platform leader at any moment. And I think Microsoft again is one of the best examples of that. I mean. For years, if you watch the Windows Windows uh, ecosystem evolve um, during the 90s, it was pretty clear that, you know, as soon as some company in the the Windows ecosystem hit, I don't know, maybe 200, 300 million bucks in revenue, they would either buy them or take that technology and put it in Windows and squash them, right? So it was kind of... uh, That was kind of the sort of the success curve for being in the Microsoft ecosystem, right? You could, you know, you're gonna die if you're not successful, but if you're too successful, you're gonna get killed too. So, Um, internal organization. um, Again, assuming that you're a single company at the heart of the ecosystem, how are you gonna organize your company to manage the ecosystem? Um, And how are you going to um, um, culturally uh, be aware of the fact that you have to both take care of your own firm's needs and build a great platform, and build your own great products, but also um, help be o- you know be open and welcoming, and foster the creation of an ecosystem. And there's a number of different uh, pieces of advice in the book um, and the articles on how you go about doing that. Um, I'm going to give you sort of an extreme example of openness and modularity, because um, I think that the, the and that really is defined, for a large degree, my experience at Eclipse. You know, One of the great good fortunes we had long before I ever got involved with Eclipse was the technical architecture by the, uh, built by the people who first started the project was that everything was a plug-in. Right? There's this very, very small couple hundred K runtime at the bottom of the Eclipse stack. Everything else is a runtime. Um, and It's open source, so it's available to everybody under the same terms and conditions. And so the level of modularity is extremely high, and what you ended up with was this very level playing field. Even the people working on the core products are using exactly the same technical architecture and exactly the same technical rules of engagement as some guy in his basement who wants to build a simple Eclipse plugin for doing whatever, you know, for scratching whatever itch he currently has. Um, so new plugins are first-class citizens, right? Same footing for everybody. Again, this very level playing field. It's a completely open API in the sense that it's all there. Actually, the Java docs are pretty decent. It's all under the Eclipse public license, so you can take it, modify it, do what you want with it. Sorry, take it, modify it, build products on top of it. You have to follow the terms of the EPL, but the barriers to entry are extremely low, and they're the same barriers to entry for everybody. Um, You get a lot of innovation. So what's happening is Eclipse is moving into tons and tons of niches because it's so easy to carry it into those niches. So you get enormous innovation, and then the competition takes place in those various niches. And you know, frankly, there are lots of pretty cruddy Eclipse plugins out there, um, and they they die fairly quickly unless they're improved pretty rapidly. So um, we let the users decide the winners. You know, one of the um, things that we do at the Eclipse Foundation is we're very laissez-faire in terms of, you know, picking winners and losers in the ecosystem. We don't try to do that. Um, we let the users decide uh, which technologies are going are to win. This is not unique to Eclipse. Um, this, very, this, this basic modularity model idea is true of all of the major open source ecosystems. You know, Linux would not be where it is today without the, the kernel model for building device drivers and extending Linux through that approach. The Apache HTTP server would not have beaten Microsoft IIS in, in, the, uh, in those wars in the 90s if it hadn't been for the fact that it was easy to create um, Apache server plugins, or like mod Perl, and extend the functionality of, the, of that server without you know, going back to the source and seeking their permission. And the Firefox extension model has been a really big part of of Firefox's uh, success and its stickiness with users. And um, it'll be interesting to see uh, what... I haven't had a chance yet to look at what the extension model is for Chrome. That'll be, uh, I think, a big part of whether or not it's successful. So whenever you think about the foundation platform in this context of an ecosystem, you have to think of the technologies, you have to think of the architectures, components and services, legal and licensing framework, and the processes that are used to evolve that platform. So those are all elements that you use in terms of um, defining what uh, or thinking about what the platform is at the basis of any ecosystem. And the interesting thing is, in most cases, you can get this platform from an existing open source community a lot easier than you could build it on your own. Something to think about. So in summary on the ecosystem stuff, uh, it's checklist, things to think about whenever you're looking at the ecosystem. Every one of you works for a company in the software industry. You participate in one or more ecosystems by definition. So go back and think about the ecosystems that you live in. What's the vision? What's the space that's defined by that ecosystem? What's the platform, and there's uh, just, you know, previous slide, enormous number of Facets that you can think about in terms of how that platform works and how it evolves over time. Who owns it? Who controls it? Who's leading it? How's it evolving? Um, continuous and co-evolved innovation, right? What is the process by which people's innovations get shared across the ecosystem, whether it's commercial or open source? Who are the keystones? Not only the keystone for the entire ecosystem, but are there key, you know, major companies within the ecosystem that are really dominating certain niches? And finally, what are the niches and can you grow your business faster by going into other niches as opposed to continuing the battle in the niche you're in right now? So, some thinking about some open source ecosystems. Um, unsurprisingly, since I'm coming from the open source world, I think that open source actually does have some pretty um, interesting lessons for ecosystem creation and evolution. Um, again, there are lots of open source ecosystems out there and you already know these, right? Um, these are all. Uh, very well-defined ecosystems that are defining a big chunk of the, the industry today. Um, so some of the things about why open source is particularly good for creating a platform. So the first is, creates a great development model uh, for encouraging open, open innovation. Great, the, the open source rules of engagement about openness, transparency, and meritocracy means there's a level playing field for anybody who wants to participate in the ecosystem. And that's extremely powerful. The fact that anybody can come and participate if they have the skills and the merit is extremely powerful. Transparency is huge. The fact that you can go to an open source community and understand what their plans are, what their technical documentation look like, look at their source code, that transparent, and understand what their roadmap is, that transparency is very, very powerful. Um, Licensing makes all the companies involved in the ecosystem um, feel better about the fact that they're on a common footing. Right, so you can, competing vendors are all competing on an evolving platform using predefined licensing or IP sharing rules. It almost doesn't matter what license you're talking about, just the simple fact that all of the e- ecosystem uh, participants are using the same license in, all, in, in, most eco, in most open source ecosystem contexts is, that alone is extremely powerful. And no single uh, control point for intellectual property is huge. Um, The business model means that you can create a platform and have it adopted very rapidly. Um, That's one of the trade-offs that you make uh, in going for an open source business model in many cases. Because it's open source, it's free, it's easily, uh, easily adopted, you will get more market share, more penetration, more growth in terms of your software footprint a lot more rapidly. The flip side is, your monetization model is gonna be different than the traditional sell software by the pound kind of approach. Um, Eclipse is actually a bit of a hybrid model because we have this very widely deployed open source platform, but our licensing model allows companies to build commercially licensed products on top. That hybrid model means that in in the Eclipse context, and this is um, also true of Apache, um, it's also true of Mozilla, means that you have this sort of hybrid, You you can build commercial technologies and sell them into an open source ecosystem. One of the lessons uh, that, that we've learned is—and this is a sort of counterintuitive for, for business people in particular—is this idea of win by letting go, right? The fact that you can create an open source ecosystem, the more you let go, right? The fewer control points there are, the, f- the more open the governance are, the more vendor neutral you are, the more rapidly you're going to attract participants to the ecosystem. And I think one of the unique benefits of an open source ecosystem is the simple fact that the keystone, sort of the company or the organization at the heart of the ecosystem, because it's a not-for-profit, it completely changes the dynamic, right? If you have a, if you contrast, say, to give an extreme case, uh, Microsoft with Apache, right? Microsoft, their ecosystem, single vendor control, they control the aden- agenda, You'd, you know, it's not that they're not it's not that they're evil people, but they have their own shareholder equity to go take care of, right So they're going to um, they're going to be taking care of Microsoft's business and if that happens to mean clobbering your business, then you know that's that's just the way the game is played. not you know it's so sad, too bad, right Apache, charity, right um, the people that, that, that participate at Apache are doing on a purely volunteer basis, they're completely vendor neutral as a matter of fact, they're vendor neutral to the point of being anal about being vendor neutral, right? Um, And they they go and they do a lot of work to make sure that there's no perception that they're being swayed in any one direction. That makes them a trusted agent, right? They They can talk about what the Apache way is, how things need to work in the Apache context, and there's no fear that they're saying so because they're trying to get commercial advantage in that conversation by pointing you in a particular direction. That makes them trusted. And that trust means that the people in the Apache context or the Eclipse context become force multipliers, right? The Eclipse ecosystem is a multi-billion dollar ecosystem with hundreds of companies and thousands of products being built in it. The Eclipse Foundation has 17 staff, right? All we do at the Eclipse Foundation is try to figure out how to get other people to do stuff. Right? Because anytime we take on a role at the Eclipse Foundation where we're the bottleneck, we're the people that are responsible for taking care of something solely on our, on our own, then that means that we're a choke point, not a force multiplier. So we really think about that very consciously. I think open source enables multiple companies to get involved in platform evolution. And again, all the literature I've ever seen on ecosystem development assumes that there's a single company leading the evolution of the platform. In an open source context, not only can you get multiple firms involved in leading the platform, you can actually have companies that would normally be a complementer, you know, somebody occupying perhaps quite a small little niche, if they decide it's in their business interests to get new features or new functionality driven into the platform, they can participate on the core open source project and make that happen. And we see this all the time. I think one of the classic examples are there are Wall Street banks that put patches into the Linux kernel, right, because they're, run, they're running their businesses on Linux. The fact that it's being done in open source, these are, com- these are companies that are typically in the traditional software business perspective, they're customers. They're not even really involved in sort of the, the, in the vendor side or the sell side of the ecosystem, and they get to be involved in evolving the, get involved in evolving the platform, right? And I think because, largely because of the pressures that we all have in the software business, you know, one of the things I always tell people is if you do not know what your product differentiating value is, and if you're not able to explain that very concisely, then you're going on a business. might take you a while, but you're toast, right? All of us have to figure out ways to focus the scarce resources we have in our companies on the features in our products that our customers actually care about. And all the other stuff, whatever it might be, you either acquire it in open source or help drive it back into open source to make it happen. Not because of any kind of altruistic um, reasons, but because of the simple fact that that is going to help you grow your business more rapidly. Or, in other words, to put this into sort of ecosystem language, you know, you have to pick your niche, but then co-evolve the platform, even if this means working with your direct competitors, but co-evolve that platform um, with the other actors in the ecosystem. The only set of books that I've really seen that talk about this idea of multiple companies collaborating on platform. Evolution and they d- and they don't use it this turn in this way at all is the books by uh, Henry Chesbrough around open innovation, and it's basically the basically his notion. Uh, by the way, there's a bunch of stuff in the books in the books which I think are complete nonsense, but there's some stuff which is actually pretty good. Um, he talks about secondary markets for patents as if they're a good thing, which is by the way it translates into he thinks patent trolls are a good thing. But um, in the in the con- he does talk about breaking down the barriers to R and D um, and not only having Innovation be something which happens inside your company, but you have to figure out a way to collaborate with companies outside of your own to figure out to, to constantly push that innovation boundary. And um, the one thing I think he got he got very wrong though is he says open innovation is sometimes conflated with open source methodologies for software development, while open source shares the focus on value creation throughout an industry value chain its proponents usually deny or downplay the importance of value capture. Uh, Value capture is what business academics use instead of saying, make money. Um, So what he's saying is that people that are involved in open source don't actually care about making money. Now that's true of some people in in, in open source, um, but it's not true of the vast majority of people involved in open source. Most people are using open source because it changes the means of production of software. They definitely want to make money out of it, They're just doing it in a vastly more, um, you know, cost-effective way of doing it. That doesn't make them weirdos. It makes them sharp business people. Uh, Just to give you one quick example, we have this project at Eclipse called Web Tools, uh, the Web Tools Platform Project. And this is sort of the Hatfield and McCoy open source project, I think, in many ways. Um, You've got IBM, Oracle, and before they bought them, BEA, and SAP, and amongst others, all collaborating on the creation of a single software platform. You know, we have emails from SAP people to Oracle people asking them how certain things work because they're going to ship Oracle-developed software in SAP products. Ain't that cool, right? And so, so what you've got is a, a network of innovation happening where you've got companies which are direct competitors collaborating on creating an open source software platform that then they and others are all using in their products. And they're doing it because it's saving them money and they're getting innovations into their products faster than they otherwise would. If you want to create one of these innovation networks, what are some of the things that you have to do? Well, the first one is yet you have to have a licensing model for, co- for sharing the innovations. You have to have a project model for coordinating all the investments that are going on. You have to have a governance model to make sure there's a level playing field for all the participants. And you have to have some kind of technical architecture for the platform. Now, one of the things about these books is you can read all three of those books. I don't think you ever see the word ecosystem. But basically what he's defined in many ways is the innovation side of creating an ecosystem. If you, I don't know how many people have ever been involved in kind of large scale corporate negotiations. But if you had, say, five companies that wanted to create an innovation network, and you had them and their corporate lawyers sitting in a room trying to devise a licensing model, a project model, a governance model, and a technical architecture on how they were going to create their innovation network, I would argue that the probability of success is asymptotically close to zero, right? It just isn't gonna happen. There's too many agendas, too many moving, you know, moving gears, it's just impossible. I, I would assert that if you're actually interested in doing this kind of collaboration, pretty much the only chance you've got is to pick up and use one of the existing open source communities as the way to create the collaboration. And I actually think to a large degree, one of the, we, we backed into this, you know, we didn't know this when we started, but one of the things that's making Eclipse successful is, that we've done a pretty good job of creating this environment where many companies can come together and collaborate on innovation. Um, So why is open source business interesting? Agility. And agility mostly because open source enables innovation through integration. Mashups, I think, are many ways a great example of that. You can get more cool stuff done faster by integrating than you could by writing it yourself. So you can innovate faster. You can enable more and faster entrants into niches, which means that you've got more competition and more innovation, which is going to generate faster growth overall for your ecosystem. And you can use, my, you can use open source to win market share. All right, so just in closing, uh, some lessons uh, from Eclipse. Um, these are kind of just some of the lessons that I've learned after doing this uh, for about four and a half years. Um, take them as you will. Um, first lesson is ecosystems are an economic engine and they exist solely for driving value to their participants, right? So this is absolutely about making money and the Eclipse ecosystem is absolutely about making money. I think one of the really interesting um, and relatively unstudied aspects of open source ecosystems is the trust factor you get by having a not-for-profit at the core of an ecosystem. Um, I think that's an interesting research area. I hope somebody studies it someday, um, but I think building trust and being a trusted, an unequivocally trusted agent at the heart of the ecosystem is is, is, is absolutely key, certainly, to our success. Um, the value of the ecosystem is ultimately proportional to its network value. Remember Moore's law, the value of a network is equal to the square of the number of nodes in the network. Um, the, uh, it's more or less true of ecosystems as well. The e- value of the ecosystem is gonna be proportional, um, maybe not the square, but proportional to the number of nodes in the ecosystem, but even more importantly, by the number of links that we establish in the ecosystem. What I mean by that is, if two companies are participating in an the ecosystem, they're not gonna be able to co-evolve innovation if they don't know about each other. If they've never heard about each other, never talked about each other, don't know what their technology is, The odds that they're gonna be able to do something cool together is really close to zero, right? We spend an enormous amount of time at Eclipse introducing people to people or companies to companies. And every time I talk to somebody who's involved in Eclipse and they say, I'm thinking about doing this, almost without fail, I will end up saying something like, do you know these guys or do you know that project or do you know what these guys are doing? Because building those linkages helps co-evolve innovation a lot more rapidly. The platform is king. Right? You have to actually, under, you really, if you're going to participate in any ecosystem, you have to un- study and know what the rules are in being engaged with that platform. And the, how modular that platform is, how open that platform is, how the evolution and governance of that evolution of that platform is controlled are all going to be hugely important aspects of your business. Everything that I've ever been able to find about reading about um, ecosystems is always going to as- is always assume that it's a single company at the heart of the ecosystem in our context, right we have multiple players involved in evolving the platform, and this multiplayer platform leadership model is a, at least to my knowledge is, is an unstudied area and I think it's actually pretty interesting and pretty cool right you need to have really strong governance rules and IP sharing rules to make it even possible. Um, And I think that it's actually extremely powerful because if you have multiple companies involved in the platform leadership, then you have multiple companies helping generate energy going into that ecosystem. They're marketing that ecosystem. They're talking about that ecosystem. They're out there uh, generating more wealth for the participants of the ecosystem. Platform evolution is scary hard. Um, we at Eclipse, are, we're currently shipping Eclipse 3.5. Uh, we're starting work on do, you know, trying to decide what a 4.0 might look like. Um, if you don't evolve your platform, and occasionally at least evolve your platform in quite dramatic ways, you die, right? That's just the way it is, right? If you're not innovating in your platform, you are going to die. If you innovate in the wrong way, or too rapidly, or do a lousy job of bringing your ecosystem along Uh, when you do that innovation, then you could also die, right? And I think, by the way, some of the uh, um, market share that you see in the PC world right now, where Apple is encroaching, um, their numbers keep to be, seem to be constantly going up. I think, you know, a lot of people attribute that to the notion that Apple's products are just inherently better somehow. Um, I think there are actually a lot of people, a lot of observers are missing the fact that Microsoft is struggling with the transition in their, their entire ecosystem from Win32 to Vista with WPF and XAML and a whole different way to build applications, um, and that um, and, and, and for, you know I even think about it, I I'm almost ready for a new computer. Do I go Vista or say screw it and buy an Apple? Right? I mean you know. <laughs> Anybody got a vote? <laughs> um, so you know it's that's and, and that kind of individual thinking just sort of illustrates how scary, hard platform evolution is. And there is nobody, as far as I know, that has a cookbook that says this is the one right way to do do it. It's just hard and inherently risky on so many dimensions. And the last piece of, uh, last thought, some free advice. Everybody thinks they want to be a platform. Every startup I talk to, I want to be a platform right? The fact is there's a lot of filthy rich people making money in niches, right? So think about it. Um, There's nothing wrong with being a niche player. Um, You can make make a really good living at it and have a very successful business. Conclusions. Our software industry is defined in terms of ecosystems. You need to know your ecosystem and your role in it. Um, I think open source ecosystems are a pretty interesting um, phenomenon. And I think think there's more of them happening every day. Um, And they have some really interesting parameters when you think about business, not just about open source as some kind of social good or or an altruistically motivated um, uh, way to build software. And managing the evolution of an ecosystem is a really fun job. And with that, thank you. Thanks for listening to the Business of Software podcast. For more information, go to businessofsoftware.org.